The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Have you heard about the new Podcast One app? There is no other podcast app like this. Download the all-new Podcast One app now in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows and get more content from my show, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Find articles, social media, episodes, and even make playlists. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans, too. We all have our little community on here. You can share your favorite content and see behind-the-scene photos, which is generally just me and my dog. Uh, But anyway, uh, plus get a 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. Reality. Plus, get a 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. There's over a thousand videos on there right now. It's like you're in the studio, which in my case would be a bedroom on the top floor. Right. Uh, Anyway, uh, the new Podcast One app looks so cool and has so many things you can do, including fun things like rewards for listening. Then again, listening to my show, it's its very own reward. I'm telling you, it's it's fantastic. Uh, So, what are you waiting for? Download the new Podcast One app in the App Store or on Google Play now. Podcast One presents Rock Talk Talk. with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, Now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk. Joining me... This week, I have from the band Sticks, Tommy Shaw. And on the other side, I have from Mr. Big, Mr. Eric Martin. Um, but before that, let me get into today's topic. Uh, the Washington Post, at the uh, end of June, put out an article called Why My Guitar Gently Weeps, The Slow and Secret Death of the Six-String Electric Guitar. And uh, they talk about how Fender, Gibson are in debt, and we've gone from 1.5 million annual sales of guitars to less than one, and there are no more guitar heroes, and so on and so forth. So I figured I need to find out about this. So I've got with me on the phone author Greg Prado, who has written a book called Shredders, The Oral History of Speed Guitar, where he talks, of course, about Eddie Van Halen, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, Ingve Momstein, Randy Rhodes, and all the greats. Uh, first of all, Greg, pleasure to have you here. Yes, thanks, Mitch, for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, so so what do you think about this Washington Post uh, article that the electric guitar is dying? Because uh, judging by your book, which is at over 400 pages, or 400 pages, where you talk about all these different shredders, it seems to me as though guitar is a current topic and still very much relevant. Yes. Uh, I never buy into when people say that a certain genre or style is totally dead. I always don't really uh, believe that because as we've seen throughout the course of rock history, things always come and go. So, But one thing I will say is I do see the point as to why sales of guitars have gone down because they're getting so bloody expensive that if you're a young guitarist or a you know struggling guitarist or just a, a guitarist that has to support themselves and also a family or whatever – you're not going to be that uh, keen on spending between two and three thousand dollars on like the high end guitar when you have to pay bills and things. I think that's the most obvious thing. I mean, in fact, I'm a uh, I, I'm also I, I sometimes play guitar and I have a Squire Stratocaster because uh, going out and buying the top end 
Fender model. It's just I have to, you know, I guess I have to put my put my funds towards some other things in life as well. Right. And you're looking at, like you said, $3,000 or more. Uh, you know, at that age, at 16, 17, perhaps buying a used car is more interesting because it'll get you a lot further, like a job, for example, compared to the right. guitar. Right, or, or, you know, saving up for college. And, you know, it's just, I think it's getting ridiculous. Like, see, that's what in my uh, book, Shredders, uh, someone, I forget exactly who, it may have been Yaz Albright or Jazz Albright, I think how you pronounce his name, pointed out that what made um, Eddie Van Halen so different at the time when he first first on the scene is that everyone was buying these old, expensive, vintage Les Pauls and everything, whereas Eddie Van Halen showed that you could just buy cheap pieces of guitars and just slap them together and you could have a very cool-sounding, very unique-looking uh, unique looking instrument. And I think that's what probably guitarists now are doing or probably have been doing for the past few years. Have we lost uh, guitar heroes? Like, you know, you look at the book that you wrote, uh, Shredders, and, and we talk about Van Halen and Satriani and Momstein and Rhodes and all these great, Uli John Roth. Uh, but in the last 10 years or 15 years, if you had to sort of write a book from, you know, 2000 to 2017, who, who would be in there? Who, who's the new sort of guitar hero? Well, there's definitely a lot of them. Uh, Chil uh, Children of Bottom, um, Trivium, uh, Dragon Force come to mind. Uh, yeah, you know, those all, uh, and also, um, Guthrie, excuse me, Guthrie Govin as well. And also of course, um, Bumblefoot. Those are just some that, uh, automatically come to mind. But something I talk about in the book is, um, I think I'm probably like a lot of other rock fans that I don't just listen just to shredders. Like I, or I, for instance, in the early nineties when I was listening to a lot of grunge type stuff, I never got rid of my Rush CDs or my Van Halen CDs, or my Black Sabbath or, you know, Thin Lizzy CDs. And I'm sure a lot of people are like that now, that they listen to just about everything. So, again, for someone to say that Shred is dead, I really absolutely don't uh, buy that at all. Now, the article also here from The Washington Post talks about Gibson and Fender being in debt. Um, do you think that they've just it's just a case of mismanagement or is there a way for them to sort of pull out of it? What do you see? Is that the issue there? That's a tough call. Um, I'm not that familiar with like the ins and outs of of their specific companies at the moment. But um, really, I mean, just from like me, when I sometimes like uh, when I go online to look at cost, uh, excuse me, when I when I see prices of guitars, or if I go into the local uh, shop that sells uh, guitars, I'm always blown away with that. Just the prices are so uh, you know very very high. So. Obviously, I, I think a way to probably boost sales is to try to start putting out quality-made instruments at a somewhat lower price. But obviously, there's supply and demand involved. There's also cost of the specific parts. So it's a very, very tricky type of uh, situation for them, I think. Yeah, and it really has gotten also – there's a lot of signature model out, models out there that I've seen upwards of $10,000 for. And it's like, wow, what are you doing? I mean, who, right. who can – you know, that's a down payment on a house, for crying out loud. Who, who right. can invest that in one instrument? Um, well, you know, I was going to say quickly, you know, one thing that's popped in my head, one way they could make, like, one thing they could try, which would be interesting, is just sell, like, a kit, and you can just put your guitars together yourself and try to, you know, I guess figure out how to do it. I mean, that would, if you just sell the parts and you just have the customer put it together, that may be a cheaper way, and they could also make money that way. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, Shredders, the oral history of speed guitar is available now uh, through Jawbone Press. 
And uh, one last thing that I'll mention here. You have Uli John Roth that contributed. Uh, Uli is a great friend. In fact, I've been trying to get him on the podcast for months now, but our, our schedules just keep not <laughs> matching in terms of sitting down and getting this done. But what is uh, what is Julie, uh, Julie, what is Uli, I should say, uh, mean to you in terms of his musical contributions, especially that early 70s Scorpions, which is just wonderful. I mean, there's, there's, there's no better word. It's just wonderful what he did back then. Yes, actually, besides the Shredder's book, uh, a year or two ago, I wrote a, a uh, book called German Metal Machine Scorpions in the 70s. And for that book, I interviewed Uli and Michael Schenker and quite a few other four members of the Scorpions. And uh, as far as Uli's contribution to Shredder's, I tried to line up an interview for the book with him. And I guess the um, schedules weren't matching up. But what happened was right at the end of the book, I did an interview with him for Vintage Guitar Magazine. And I asked if we could uh, or if he would be willing to contribute a afterward for the uh, Shredder's book. And he was able to do that. So he came in at the at the very last minute. And also Alex Lifeson from Rush wrote the forward for the book. So that's a great honor. But yeah. as far as um, what makes Uli special as a guitarist, he was, to the best of my knowledge, one of the first guitarists to merge classical music and also metal. And also what was unique at the time, he was very influenced by Jimi Hendrix. When you think about the Scorpions, you don't necessarily think about Jimi Hendrix, but if you go back to their 70s material, tracks like, for instance, Hellcat is very, very Hendrix sounding. So uh, he was just very unique and was an obvious influence on later Ingve Malmsteen and uh, it's oh, and also, of course, Kirk Hammett as well, because Kirk Hammett wrote the forward to that Scorpions book called German Metal Machine as well. Yeah. So um, he yeah. It, and also you could say that Uli John Roth and 70 Scorpions was a humongous influence on what became thrash metal as well. It seemed like all those thrash guitarists were also very big Scorpions fans. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just before I let you go, uh, July, of course, uh, would mark the uh, month in which Eric Carr, the drummer of uh, KISS, was born. And you wrote the Eric Carr story back in 2011. And I encourage everybody uh, to check out that book because anything about Eric is uh, is great. And, of course, uh, any quick stories about Eric before we, uh, we wrap up? Well, just to I, I always thought he was a really special drummer. Usually when a drummer comes into an establishment or when a member replaces a uh, well, like, for instance, with Kiss, Eric Carr replaced Peter Chris, And whenever there is a replacement member, he's usually not as loved as the original member. But Eric Carr was one of the few instances where he was automatically embraced, I guess, because fans can kind of relate that he came out of completely. He just came out. Of, he came out of absolutely nowhere and was in one of the biggest bands. So I guess fans can kind of like identify with him with that. And also it was his drumming that made the Creatures of the Night album so great, that, that huge, humongous cannon sound drumming. So I think he was also looked upon as one of the key parts that put Kiss back on track with that Creatures of the Night album. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think having met him and, and spoken to him, uh, just the fact that he was so incredibly nice. And I, I mean, you know, the last time I spoke with him was on the Hot in the Shade tour. And he didn't he didn't have, you know, six or seven years of attitude or look at me or I'm better than he just was always humble and always nice. And, and that's one of those things that I think a lot of fans who got a chance to meet him, who got a chance to see him, at, you know, hanging out at a mall or whatever, just realize, you know what? He really is just one of us. And man, he's so missed. So, so. Yeah. Missed. Yeah. You know, it, it, it seems like he spent a lot of years paying dues. That I think when he finally made it, he never realized or he, he never forgot what it was like to be on uh, the other side, kind of. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Greg, great pleasure. Uh, where can folks find you online? Then go to my Twitter page, uh, twitter.com slash Greg Prado writer. And you could also go on Amazon and do a search for Greg Prado and see all my books. I've, I'm up to over 20 books already. Yeah, and every single one has been an absolute pleasure to read. Uh, Greg, a great pleasure. And I shall be right back with Tommy Shaw. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaVaughn. Mitch LaVaughn. And a uh, big thank you to uh, Greg Prado for that great discussion about guitars. Are we losing our guitar heroes? And uh, will the sales of uh, guitars ever rebound? But uh, we'll see. We'll keep an eye out for that. Uh, speaking of our keeping an eye out, uh, if you haven't already bought it, uh, keep an eye out and buy the new Sticks album, The Mission. It is really, really well done. And I sat down with a guitarist, uh, there you go, guitarist, Tommy Shaw, to discuss the new album and uh, also his other band that he was in for a little time called The Damn Yankees. They had, of course, two really, really good albums, and uh, they even had a third album. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. What? Say what? A third album? Yep. Uh, it's uh, still unreleased to this day, and uh, Tommy and I uh, talk about that. So what are you going to do? We're just going to get right into this. One of two interviews today, uh, the next one coming right up, is Eric Martin of Mr. Big. But without further ado, here is the one, the only, from Sticks, Tommy Shaw. We are speaking with Tommy Shaw of Sticks. The new album is The Mission, which, uh, Tommy, by the way, hello. And I've heard the album over and over and over again. It's in my iPod, or iPhone, I should say. It is absolutely brilliant from top to bottom there is not a detail that was missed well thanks mitch that we we tried not to miss anything and uh you know it was it was one of those records though that was just you know sometimes you you can struggle with writing and other times it's like it's already written and you're just transcribing it and it was a little more like that uh and then it was just a matter of of you know, we're just following the details and not getting, not ever letting something just, you know, slip by. Uh, so, and everybody in the band, God, they were all so good in it. It was the, the what I was hoping to get was hear everybody the way I hear them in the dressing room when they're just goofing off and they're just playing and trying new stuff. And especially Ricky Phillips, uh, the way he played on the record is the way I hear him playing in the dressing room when he's warming up every day. And I, I wanted to get that. And, and you captured it perfectly. Um, but talk to me about the delay in, in making a new album. You know, much has been said that it's been the first sort of studio album in 14 years of original music, 12 years if you're looking at Big Bang Theory. Uh, because, you know, the band has a very rich catalog. You've toured constantly playing those great hits. What sort of compelled you to say, okay... Let's do this now. It's time to to go in and make a new album. Well, the songs just started coming uh, about three years ago. We were playing in uh, Catalina Island, and uh, uh, this idea came to me for this little this little thing. In a way, it's actually the, the last thing you hear on the record that that fades off. That do 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 do. And I, I was just messing around in the dressing room, and I and I got that. So. I did what I always do. If you're a songwriter, you got you, you, you're not going to remember any of this stuff—a lyric or a melody line or a riff or something like that. So I recorded it on my phone, 
then I played it back and then I played some chords along with it. And I said, well, now I got to record that too. So I put my iPad next to my phone and I played along with it. And when I got it home, I laid it out in a session and, um, and I wrote a little middle part to it and kind of just demoed it out uh, as a track. And then at the same time to write lyrics and, you know, that last song, Mission to Mars, it's, uh, you know, now I can say this is the day we'll be on our way on our mission to Mars. It's kind of a limerick ca- cadence. So the, I picked up a pad to write the words so I could sing something. And the first thing that came out was, now I can say this is the day we'll be underway on our mission to Mars. And that's where, that's the first time it, it, it made itself known. As, and it, that's just what seemed like it should be. And uh, so I wrote a bunch of other verses, and then I wrote the middle section where it, uh, it took a turn and said, let's say goodbye to all your friends. Uh, then that, that's when it occurred to me, you know, all this excitement and hoopla about Mission to Mars that's going on now and will be up until the day they launch, uh, to have this human side to it. But yeah, this is awesome. However, you are saying goodbye to everything and everyone you know, and and to me, that's what made it interesting. It's like, that's how you would write music about a mission to Mars. Yes, there's all this stuff, but at the same time, there's these people, and they all have a story. Looking at this album in terms of making new music, is there a pressure uh, putting this album together with the current um, market forces? Or if you look back and say, okay, listen, we're not expected to have a single. We don't have an AOR guy chasing us. Was it a sort of a freer uh, uh, process this time? Well, we've we've always kind of had that attitude because none of us really knows how to write hit singles. Or, I mean, we kind of know, but it's that's not a it's it's that's a different thought process. That's your you're creating something to try and have a certain end to it, you know, where you want it to be commercial and that sort of thing and. Those kind of songs, you know, there are some very talented people who write some great music like that, but that's never been what we are. We, we were always an album-oriented rock band. And now, after, you know, 14 years ago, we, we realized, you know, in a quite cold uh, way that there was no place for a classic rock band to have new music. So that's why, we, you know, we went through all that process and then had an album and there was nowhere to go with it. So uh, we just did it. Let's just be ourselves and and be sticks. And there's not going to be any singles, but you know they'll they'll play some you know something. Here's here's a new track from Sticks. So we never really felt uh, any pressure to have a a hit single. I'm from Montreal, so from Canada. You have a great Canadian singer in Lawrence Gowan. Talk to me about what he brings to the table. because, you know, we've known him here up here through the 80s doing a Criminal Mind and Moonlight Desires, and he's just a perfect fit, right? Oh, uh, so unbelievable. You know, and, and when Dennis left the band, um, you know, there was one thought of, like, can we find somebody that sounds like him? And that never sounded right. It never, you know, he has his own thing, his own persona, and to find somebody to, who's going to act like that or to try and sound like that. Actually, we did find... We found this one singer from Montreal. He sent us a, 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 you know, a CD of him singing some of our songs, and he sounded exactly like Dennis. J.Y. and I stood by the console and sang along with him, and I was like, well, wow. Uh, uh, Kim Willett, who runs my 
crystal ball website. Right. Uh, Up here in Canada, she, actually. Yeah. And she had been to the show that, uh, that Lawrence had opened for us. And that's when we met him. And, and I always loved criminal minds. And I heard him playing and he was just, oh, and he was playing solo just on piano and he was bringing the house down. And Kim said, what, what about Lawrence Gowan or Gowan is he, you know, everybody knows him by. And uh, I said, do I, I, you know, he's got a career. I wonder if he'd be interesting, interested. And uh, so we spoke and, and I, you know, he, he doesn't sound like Dennis, but he has this great sound of his own. And uh, to me, the idea of having somebody who can sing those songs and, and sing them with, with feeling and credibility, uh, it doesn't have to sound like somebody else because everybody knows it's not that person. I would rather go forward with, you know, like, like when, uh, when Peter Gabriel left and Phil Collins, Phil Collins took over, they don't sound alike, but they both really deliver in their own way. And that was what was more interesting to me. And he came over and, you know, he was going to sing some six songs. And I, I said, do criminal mind. And he, he performed for us, you know, in my little studio. And we, we were all just having our mouths hanging open at the end of it. And it was like that, that, that is more interesting to me. And when you find, you know, you see bands that change players and stuff all the time, but finding the the singer that's right for a band is sometimes very hard. And as far as Styx is concerned, there just isn't a better match, I don't think. Uh, in July of 1977, you released, uh, you released The Grand Illusion, 40 years now. Um, talk to me about that album and, and what it's meant in your career and, and the band's career, because it was your second album with the band. Uh, just a game changer, I would say, right? It totally was, and and you know, there's there's a golden era for bands uh, when they're when especially uh, when they're when they haven't had their big record yet, and you know, they're getting to know each other, and they're you're all going through the same thing. You're you know, we were we were, at that point we were still we would be we'd go to a city and we'd rent you know two station wagons. And we'd all be driving there and we're doubling up, you know, on hotel rooms and we're living the same exact life and going through the same things. And, uh, and as a band, we're, we're still fresh. And so it's all man's, all hands on deck for, I don't care who wrote the song, everybody jumps in there and let's make it as good as we can. And there was that feeling going on when we wrote the Grand Illusion album and we weren't trying to write a concept album, but we were all going through the same things. So it really had this cohesive feel to it, and and you could really you could tell everybody was all in on it, and that's what this was like for us. Uh, it was just one of those great things where everybody jumped in and and you know was was trying to do their best and you know unhappy. Let me go back and do this and, and let and until everybody was satisfied. So it was, it was very very similar to the Grand Illusion in that way. Yeah, it really was. Um, let me move on to your relationship here, or your your working relationship with Jack Blades of Night Ranger. You've done Shaw Blades, which is f- fabulous, and of course, yeah. Damn Yankees. Um, before we get into those two sort of projects, just talk to me about Jack and what is so interesting to you about uh, making music with him, performing with him, and just being sort of around him in the studio. Well, he's just this bundle of energy and ideas and... He's a very bright guy, and uh, he's just got a great way in the studio of keeping every, everything 
uh, exciting and enthusiastic, and uh, he's an awesome bass player, great songwriter, great singer. So, so there's it's that all hands on deck thing again. You know, anything you know, we need to do something. He and I could get out there and sing the parts, do the, you know, write the parts. Uh, never a dull moment in the studio. There's never a scratching your head now. What do we do? Moment. Yeah, not not with Jack. So, you know, here at the end of the '80s, you are not in sticks. You're 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 on a break. Let's let's, let's call it that. Uh, and you put together "Damn Yankees." Was that put together as we're just going to do one album and then we'll we'll go out and do our own thing, or was this really we're going to try to form a band and move this forward for the next? 10, 15, 20 years? Oh, there was no plan. <laughs> okay. It, uh, it was, uh, it was, I had re- released a, a few solo albums and I had a band and that sort of thing, but I always liked being in a band where you had, there was more stuff going on, not just one, one voice the whole time. And uh, so I went to my manager's office and I, and I said, you know, I, I want to be in a, a band again. And he said, let's call John Kolodner. Uh I don't know if you know who he was, but he was... Yes, uh, the guy, Aerosmith, uh, dude looks like a lady, yeah. the whole, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you saw the guy in the wedding dress, that's John. Correct. So uh, so John gets on and he said, and he had, you know, he's got this nasally voice that everybody imitates. And he said, what about you and Ted Nugent? And I just seen Ted at, uh, we both had albums out at the same time. My, my ambition album, and he had uh, "Can't Lick 'Em, Lick 'Em." I think was what that one was. Right. And so we 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 sat there at this music convention thing, where all these executives were up there talking about how you don't have to worry about digital stuff. They'll never make a, a DAT player small enough to put in the car. And we're looking at each other, going, "What a putz!" <laughs> and uh, so so Ted and I had just seen each other, and so it was an easy. We'd known each other, you know, just in passing for years. So we're, and Ted was like, sure, I'll come to New York. And I, I already had my solo band. So uh, Michael Cardelloni was in that band. And uh, so he came up and within a couple of hours, we had written Come Again. And so suddenly we have this, wow, you know, just out of nowhere, Come Again happened. And uh, so then Ted left and not, not much happened. We both got busy again. And then... Uh, all of a sudden, Jack Blades had done the same thing. He had called Kolodner. So Kolodner says, I'm sending Jack Blades to New York. And even though we'd met before at, at you know, award shows and things like that, we didn't really know each other. He shows up on my, my front doorstep in New York. I was living in, on the upper, upper West Side then. Shows up with a suitcase and uh, comes in and he says, can I do some laundry? And so he got settled in downstairs to do some laundry. And I could hear him down there humming, just kind of, you know, like just something you do while you're doing laundry. He starts singing, I don't want to hear about it anymore. And I heard that, and I went over to the piano, and then I wrote, can you take me high enough? And I wrote that part, and I I yelled down at him, I said, come up here, come here, see if these things go together. And within 10 minutes, we'd written high enough, so... You know, sometimes in your life, things that are meant to be, they just sort of lay themselves out in front of you like that. 
and that was what happened there. Well, it was it was a great uh, moment of serendipity then, if that's if that's the case. Now, the band put out two albums that had uh, great success. I, in fact, bought both. Um, but there was a, a, this infamous third album that was done at the end of the 90s. What is the story? And fans have been calling it Bravo. I don't know if that's the actual name that it was going to be. But what happened there? Why did it sort of all fall apart or never come out? Why do we have this unreleased Damn Yankees album? Because, you know, the way I just described the first music happening? Right. Uh, this wasn't like that. This was trying to make something happen. And uh, with a producer that uh, uh, wasn't right, and it was just it it it, it 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 was just not good. It wasn't didn't sound like Dan Yankees. There wasn't you know the producer didn't get it, and uh, it it just was one of those things that you know you just have to realize when things are working and when they're not. And uh, so, so I, I may have it. I may have the master tape in my basement, and 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 no one's ever going to hear it. <laughs> and, and none of those songs have been re-released on any kind of other project, right? Well, we did do Jack and I did write "Yes, I Can," uh, and that wound up on uh, a six album. I might I might be on Cornerstone. We'll go. I'll go back and and check that. Um, Shaw Blades, uh, great music put out together under that moniker. Uh, I think the last one was 2007, perhaps. Um, yep. right. is, uh, memory, huh? As I get older, the memory started sliding, but there you go. Uh, but is, is is there a chance that we might see, because I mean, I'm sure we won't see another damn Yankees, but will we see something else with, with Shaw Blades? It's possible. And we, we've got a, we got half of a new, uh, it was like a part two of influences, of influence, I mean. And uh, so there's about half of that uh, already recorded that, but both of our careers have gotten so busy. You know, Night Ranger's doing well. They record new albums and they go out and tour. It, well, since you mentioned uh, touring, or at least I, I thought I heard touring, Ario Speedwagon and Don Felder, over the last few years, you've put together these great packages. Um, tell me about this package. And, of course, right after that, uh, you go out with stick sort of solo shows where you're coming to uh, Montreal, in fact. Um just talk to me about working with Don and, and, and REO Speedwagon and all these different packages you've put together over the years. Well, REO and, and, and Sticks have been good friends for forever. And uh, we really cemented it in, uh, in 2001 with uh, 9-11. Uh, it was one of those things where I, I called my manager and I said, I, I feel like I need to do something. What can we do? And I, he said, what if we try and put on a benefit concert? Because uh, we'd, a, a friend of ours was uh, uh, was in the police department in New York, and he told us about how the Port Authority was headquartered in one of the towers, and there was a smaller police organization, and they lost, 30, 30, I think, 39 people. So they, they all knew each other personally, and they, they weren't really getting much mention in the, in the whole thing. So we said, well, let's do a benefit concert for them. And uh, so I, Charlie said, call KC uh, and see if, if he'd like to do it. And uh, so I called Kevin and told him about it. And he said, just immediately says, I'm in, we're in. So we said, let's start calling all our friends. And we put together this huge, actually two concerts 
uh, and raised uh, three quarters of a million dollars for uh, the Port Authority Police Department's Widows and Children's Fund. And they had all our friends join us. And uh, a couple of years later, we, that's when it became Rock to the Rescue. And we did it again. And uh, so uh, we're actually with the very next year. And uh, so we realized it was time for us to start, you know, let's go play some shows with REO. And uh, so we've had this friendship that, that has been going on. We both had albums, you know, competing for the number one spot in 1981. And uh, so we, 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 we actually did a, uh, a CD, DVD that we, that we called it Arch Allies. Because that's kind of who we were. We weren't, we were, we were competitors, but we we're friends. So that's always been an easy fit with uh, the fans seem to like the two bands together. Uh, and then when Don Felder, uh, when we met Don, actually Jack Blaze and I met him. We played a benefit concert with him in uh, Cerritos, California. Uh, and Stephen Stills was there. Uh, 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 Cheech Marin. Uh, just some other people were, were on the, the show. And uh, all these things kind of came together. And, and, and Don, uh, I met him at an Alice Cooper uh, uh, what is it, the Christmas pudding concert. Yeah, down in Arizona. And he invited me that afternoon to play Hotel California with him. And, of course, I yes, I will. And I went back to my room and got the single and learned it all and got the sound check. Well, I learned the album version and got to some parts where I, 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 I forgot that there was a whole different arrangement at the end. So now I got Don Felder giving me the stink eye while I was on stage. I, I, I went back and then learned the uh, live version of before the gig that night. And we've been friends ever since. That's funny. Um, I see that we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, where do we go from here in terms of new albums? I mean, did this get sort of the, the juices flowing, and maybe in one year, two years, we see a new Sticks album? Or do we sort of say, hey, listen, let's just go play the hits. Maybe in 10 years we'll, we'll think about this again. Well, we, we do now. We, we have the whole mechanism for making, uh, for making a new album, and uh, it... it there was a little bit of a learning curve putting it all together for this, but now we have, you know, we've got the great Blackbird studio, seven and a half minutes from my house. We have uh, Jim Scott that we would absolutely have, have mix it and Richard Dodd, who we would absolutely have master it again. So, uh, so now you just wait for the songs. The songs will tell you, you know, and we, we, we don't try and force songs. You know, when a, when a song is ready to be born, it lets you know, and that's to me, that's the best and really only way to write for a band like Sticks is if, if that music is out there and it's wanting to come in, you let it in and let that tell you if, whether it's time to record a new album or not. Yeah, you can't you can't be forcing that stuff. And uh, Tommy, I'll, I'll I'll finish on this the, a story that I told you in uh, Malone, New York, but just get a chance for the folks to hear it is. Uh, in 1996, you were flying in from Chicago to Montreal to be at the uh, Molson Center with Kansas. And uh, you were sitting behind me on the airplane the entire ride in. I kept looking at you thinking, Ugh, I can't bother him. He's on a plane. Just leave him alone. But at, at the end, I gave, ah. you a, I gave you a crumpled one dollar, one American dollar. And I said, could you sign this? And you looked at me and you went, nah. And I went, okay, that's fair enough. And about two <laughs> seconds later, you tapped me on the shoulder and you handed me a, um, 
eight by ten color eight by ten you signed it and you said hey do you want to come to the show tomorrow and I said well unfortunately I can't it's my birthday I have to and you said well give it back to me and you wrote to Mitch happy birthday uh, Tommy Shaw and I just wanted to thank you for that publicly because it's one of those stories that I'll never forget and it just talks to the class and 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 uh, that you have and why um, I have a great respect for what you do. Oh, thanks, Mitch. That's very cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. I love and, that. And uh, thank you, Tommy. Thanks, Mitch. And we'll talk soon. It was a blast. Okay. Yeah, bye-bye. bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Hey, Mitch here. And uh, are you in the market for a new car? And want to see what others have paid? Well... In order to feel confident and comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing context. Information that empowers you to feel confident. With True Car, you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. True Car will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now that you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is a competitive pricing offer to you only by True Car Certified Dealers for an actual vehicle on their lawn. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a fast buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. True Car users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident buying experience. Some features not available in all states. What makes new Simply Summer's Eve Feminine Wash different? It's simple. Seriously, that's the answer. It's made with simple ingredients. Ingredients that help stop odor and help you maintain a naturally healthy pH, gently and effectively. Here's what Simply Summer's Eve ingredients do not include. Harsh chemicals, dyes, alcohol, or parabens. And it comes in light, refreshing scents like mandarin blossom and coconut water. New Simply Summer's Eve Gentle Foaming Wash and Cleansing Cloths. Gentle by nature. Click the tile to learn more. Hey, have you heard? Podcast One has a whole bunch of awesome new shows filled with big names that are waiting for you on our brand new amazing app. This one's a game changer. There's Norman Lear talking to Amy Poehler, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Charles Barkley. Geffen Playhouse Unscripted with Brian Cranston, Josh Gad, and soon Neil Patrick Harris. Nice. OC Real Housewife, Heather Dubrow's World, Lady Gang's Three Mimosa Podcast with Leah Michelle, Nelly Furtado, L. King, and more. Plus every episode of The Adam Carolla Show, Dan Patrick, and Rich Eisen. And if you like what happens in the ring, we've got Steve Austin, Chris Jericho, Chael Sonnen, and a whole bunch more. So download our one-of-a-kind new app and see for yourself. Go to the App Store, Google Play, or download it now at podcast1.com. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back, and a big thank you to uh, Tommy Shaw of Sticks. The new album is The Mission. Definitely worth checking out. Let us move on to interview number two with singer Eric Martin of the band Mr. Big. They have a new album that you've heard about uh, on the show before called Defying Gravity. And he also has a sort of side band, side live project with uh, PJ Farley and uh, Steve Brown of Trickster called USA Pop Brigade. 
So we talk about that. We talk about, of course, the new album, Defying Gravity, uh, his relationship with uh, bassist Billy Sheehan, and all kinds of wonderful stuff. So without further ado, here is the one, the only, from Mr. Big... Eric Martin. We are speaking with Eric Martin of Mr. Big. He's also got USA Pop Brigade with PJ Farley, Steve Brown, and Rich Scanella on drums. Um, Eric, always a pleasure. Let's uh, let's get started here with the USA Pop Brigade first, and then we'll get to Mr. Big after. Um, explain to the folks exactly what that is. I know that in April you ran off to Japan. You did some shows. Yeah. What is it? It was just. It, what is it? It was just a f- fun project that I thought of, you know, do more of a thrashed out, bash out the A chord, simple uh, kind of pop punk rock band, but play songs that um, there are songs that um, Mr. Big has never played before. And maybe like even there was a couple songs that I wrote was one is called How Did I Give Myself Away? that I wrote with Billy Sheehan years ago, there was more punk rock, pop, kind of heavier punk rock kind of song, and we never played it. And so I wanted to take the songs that I've never done before, and obviously some of the hits and stuff, and uh, I connected with uh, uh, PJ Farley and Steve Brown from Trickster Guys, and I said, let's pool our resources together. Let's just have kind of a fun party band. We'll invite... Um, people that we know, the, uh, you know, great singers like Jeff Scott Soto and, uh, Joe Lynn Turner and try to get John Waite and Eddie money or, any, you know, anybody who's has got like these pop kind of rock hits and, uh, you know, come up with this kind of fun party two out two hour plus party kind of band, not dressing up like in eighties clothes or any shit like that, but just some really cool music. And yeah, we did go to Japan. It was, it was only four shows, but it was super successful. And, um, and at the time when I put it together, I didn't have anything else going. Uh, Mr. Bigot, you know, we did our stories. We could tell album about two or three years ago, we toured on it. It was great. But right after that, I went out on the road playing acoustic and doing all that stuff. And I kind of missed the feel of a, of a rock band. And because I didn't know what the future was with Mr. Big at all. I mean, I, I actually, no one knows the future of Mr. Big. When we got back together in 2009, we made it clear that we would, we would just do an album, do some touring, and then take a couple of years off and then do it again and again until it gets boring. But it, right. it hasn't been boring. It has been, it's been great. Uh, not boring. Boring is not the right word, I would think. Until it gets painful. You know, and um, uh, there, I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel uh, with Mr. Big, so I put to this put this band together. And then right when I got back from Japan, um, our management, uh, the big management, called up and said, "Yeah, we're going to do an album." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> so got kind of caught off guard on that one, but uh, still USA propagate like we're, we're going to be playing Mexicali live coming up here and next week in New Jersey. And we're also, uh, uh, playing at the Lima festival in Ohio loud in Lima, like the bean. And, uh, you know, I mean, we don't, I don't know. 
I like to see a future for this band. I mean, I Trickster's got their their own thing, and uh, I obviously now I got my my plate is pretty full with Mr. Big, but I do like this kind of side band here, USA Pop Brigade. I mean, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to have a something else to do to kind of keep my chops up for Mr. Big because. Uh, well, it is a big priority. It is a priority. Now, um, is this a band that's just going to be a touring band and with the guest vocalists and all this and that, or do you really want to sort of move it into let's get a deal with you know whatever record label and make original no. music? No. Okay. So it's it's no no it's a no, touring. No. It is only. a Mitch. Yeah. Yeah. It is original music. See, I mean, it, okay. We're not. Yeah. It's not. It's not a. It's a cover band, but we're playing our own hits. You know, gotcha, gotcha. Um, you know, play a bunch of Mr. Big songs, my some Eric Martin songs that you know I'll throw in there, and even some new ones uh, here and there. But and 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 Trickster songs as well, and done more. You know, I don't know how I haven't seen Trickster live in a long time, but I wanted to make it just you know just really like just hard edge, simple three chord rock, you know, and not, I mean, Steve Brown, he, he's, he's unbridled. He, he'll be like, he'll be, he, he can't wait to wheedle, you know? And I, that's what I love about him. I mean, he definitely, he's got, he's got the fire still, but I wanted to make it pretty much just straight ahead, uh, pop punk rock, you know? Right. Right. And, and, and I know um, Steve keeps saying to but me, no, yeah, but no, no deal. No, I no, no. I don't want it. I don't want it. I, I don't want to go that route yet, you know. I, I think I've been, I've been threatening to make a solo album for the last 13 years, and I think, <laughs> I think, hopefully that'll be the next thing to do, you know, if I'm gonna do a record deal kind of thing like that. But I, I don't, I don't want to get mixed up with any of that. I, the, the, my, my heart lies with Mr. Big, and the USA Pop Brigade. That's, that's fun. You know, that's nobody, you know, if you think you stink, nobody has to, uh, uh, this, this ain't going to be, Hey, you know, record deals and all that kind of bullshit. Now this is just, uh, play for the people and play. have a good time. That's it. Play for the people. And I know that Steve has, has, uh, kept telling me that he wants it to, uh, to call it the rock brigade. I guess it's his, uh, inner deaf leopard that is coming out, but, uh, I love I love yeah, the name yeah. US, uh, US. That kid's Trump. got way more testosterone than uh, than I know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's full. He's a, yeah. He 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 thinks the USA propagates a little on the light side. I'm like, I don't think so at all. I'd look at it more like pop is more universal to me than than just rock. I mean, you could pretty much play it all. I mean, look, to be with you is now rock, so you can. It's a pop hit, you know. So I look at more. Uh, and I'm, 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 I was kind of, like I said, like uh, pop punk hard rock style, but I was, I was going towards, you know, uh, Beatles and Jellyfish and Clash and that kind of stuff. Right. Steve Brown. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what it is. He, if, if Steve wants to tell everybody it's Rock Brigade, it's not that big a deal to me. You know. Right. Plus, but uh, I, I'm going with pop now. Pop the USA Pop Brigade, of course, is a is a famous USA Pop Brigade. Yeah. A famous misheard lyric from the uh, White Man in Hammersmith Palais from the Clash. So it's it's very sort of rock and roll to have that. Um, 
Let me turn my attention here to, to Mr. Big for for a second. New album is Defying Gravity. Um, okay. Absolutely wonderful. I mean, I've I've heard it. I've listened to it. It is just a great, really. Great, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a great album. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. I appreciate that. You know, it is. It's a unique album. I mean, a lot of you know, I've been getting feedback from friends and colleagues and stuff, and and they go, oh, what happened to the you know, they're just so used to the format that we've done for so many years, sort of like our set list when we play live, Daddy Brother or Addicted to That Rush, which is like the fast, heavy, hard rock song, then the kind of groovy country rock song that comes after that, and uh, then a ballad, and they get back to rock, you know, like a set list. But this record's not like that at all. It's more, and it's not, I'm not saying it's an evolution at all. It's just a collection of, uh, songs that we wrote that I, w- I was I was completely surprised when I came into the recording studio. I thought I I didn't think anybody had any material. I thought we were going to write and record it as is, like uh, you know, right from our heads, right onto the paper. At you know when we got together, and I came in, I go, gosh, I only had like three songs. I thought you know, like I thought I was going to save the day here, you know, and I go, I only got three songs maybe four. And they go, Paul goes, Oh, I got seven. I'm like, all right, let's do it. You know? And, um, yeah, it was, you know, like our last album stories we could tell it was, a that record was done. It was, it was an interesting record because Billy and Paul had been on the road and me and Pat Torpy basically, you know, we had all this, these ideas and some finished songs and we chopped it up and cut and diced and, you know, put it all together. And he was also just informed me while we were doing this, that I have Parkinson's disease and I'm like, Holy shit. And so it's pretty stressful for him and, um, you know, mentally and physically and all that. But, but he's, you know, somehow he, stepped up maybe because of this project because of some you know a, a goal something to do you know and anyway him and i put together that whole stories we could tell and uh and then eventually billy and paul showed up about a month later and then we 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 rocked it out but um on this record it was more of it used to be like united front you know more of a um a, a unity and we, even though we had six days to do it because of Kevin Elson, our producer, we really wanted to work with him again. He's the guy that did a, our first four. Yep. And we loved Kevin, but Kevin only had a week uh, window. And, and then Paul only had about six days before he was going to go back on the road again. And even though, I mean, I was panicked beyond belief. The other three guys were like, ah, this is going to be cool. It's like a challenge. Like my pants were down, you know? And I was, I I was totally caught off guard. Pants were down, caught off guard. Thank God I added that part. And, but, um, I was, I was, uh, I wasn't prepared. And so when we got together, uh, it was cool that everybody stepped up and brought in a bunch of songs and, Billy brought in two. Paul wrote Paul wrote seven. Pat and I worked on on one, and 
I was so inspired in the studio by everybody while they're working out their solo parts, which like in an hour, I wrote this song called Everybody Needs a Little Trouble, like in 25 minutes. I took some ideas that Paul had given me some kind of a, a almost like a Bo Diddley riff that he'd written over and it was on a loop. And I just took that and ran with it. 20, 25 minutes later, I go, hey, it was kind of unfinished and I did fix it later when I did my real vocals a couple of days later. But I go, guys, I got another song. And I go, oh, great. And so it was neat to, um, to all be together again because we, we hadn't done that in like fucking seven years or something like that, you know? So it was a collective... Uh, yeah, and, and soulful I, thing, you know. And I like the idea of it being done in six days. It it sort of brings you back to those early days of Sabbath doing an album in like nine hours kind of thing. Like there's just no no yeah. time to rethink everything and repro tools and retweak and it's just like, let's get oh, in, yeah. get it in, punch it out. And and I think that's I think that's what it captures. It it captures because Mr. Big, I think your 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 big attraction um, is the fact is your live show. I mean, you cannot yeah. compete with a Mr. Big live show. And this, this album yeah. seems to capture the live show. If, if you know what I mean, it's, it's got this like raw, live, compelling energy to it. And it, it's, it's just spectacular. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's, even though um, it's not as slick as I thought it was going to be like, you know, when I was, when we were in the studio doing it, uh, it was super raw, you know, super raw. I mean, like, I was like, oh, wow, this is, uh, it, this like, it, it was, it was Ramon style in the, in the beginning, you know, just, uh, just a lot of basic tracks and stuff like that. And then at, uh, three o'clock in the morning, Paul Gilbert's riffing out these solos and stuff. But, um, but then what Kevin Elson did to it, and I think it helps a lot that Kevin is a musician and an arranger and a songwriter as well. And so, you know, he kind of mold, he, he kind of, he, he definitely brought out the, uh, the live feel for us, you know, and, and didn't do a lot of like, you know, like, and I was listening to lean into it, the one that he did our second album. And there was a man, there was a boatload of reverb on that record. Maybe it was just a sign of the times of the, of the, um, early nineties, you know, but that didn't seem a lot of that on this record. It was a little bit more, it is what it is. You know, it's Mr. Big, yeah. just raw and uncut vibe, you know? Yeah. So, so, so talk to me about, uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin Nelson. You know, he did do Mr. Big lean into it, bump ahead. And he seems to be able to capture the sound like nobody else can capture. Is that a fair? Is that a fair statement that that he just seems to be the guy for Mr. Big? Yeah, he he was in you know those those first four and when and not to take away from other guys too. This guy Richie Zito who did um, two albums with us with Richie Kotzen, uh, an album called Get Over It and Actual Size. And then Pat Regan, who had, uh, had he did um, stories we could tell, but I think he, he also did another one uh, in the, in the early 
I can't remember which one it was, but, um, and then Kevin Shirley, you know, from Iron Maiden and Joe Bonamassa and yep. tons of other groups and stuff. Journey. Black uh, Country did, Communion. Yeah, Black, yeah, exactly. With Glenn, with Glenn Hughes. Hughes. Yep. And um, he did a great job, I thought. It was kind of muddy a little bit in some of the recording, but he definitely captured kind of a live thing. Um mainly because we told him, we go, we go, Hey man, we want to make this really raw. And then when it started to become really raw and like, I, I go, uh, I go, yeah, I want to fix some of my vocals. And he goes, no, you can't. It's just going to be, this is the way it is. And it was a, it was a good live sounding record, but I, and I love Kevin Shirley, but there was kind of a hostage crisis going there. It kind of, there wasn't, um, oh God, I, I totally don't want to say anything about the caveman. He was a, gr- he was a, a great guy to work with me right. personally. But, but you know but, what, uh, but, it's, it's but fair I, to Kevin say. Elson, just Kevin the, Elson was more like the fifth beetle, you know? Right. And, and, and I just want to say, it, it's fair to say just because, you know, sometimes a, a great producer or, you know, it's like, I always use this as an example. Um, Eddie Van Halen might be a better guitarist than Ace Fraley, but Eddie Van Halen mm. and Kiss would just sound weird, you know, or, or or Neil Pert and Kiss would sound weird. So sometimes it's not about being yeah. a good or bad guy. It's just it, it, the pieces no, don't no, fit. No, not at all. Right? And, and yeah, Kevin uh, really seems to fit with what Mr. Big does, um, with no disrespect meant to anybody else. Um, you did mention Actual Size, which was done by uh, Richie Zito, who, if I remember correctly, had worked with Cheap Trick in the past. Oh yeah, cheap trick, Eddie Money. He actually played with Elton John. I mean, Bad was, English, bunch a bunch. Bad of English, yeah, fucking great uh, guitar player, great great song man. I love working with Richie. He was he was, and I worked with Richie on a on an album in the in 1987. I did a solo album called "I'm Only Fooling Myself," and Richie did that one and that pretty much everybody in LA at the time, you know, that all the Toto people and all that stuff. But yeah, Richie, he's a great song guy. And, uh, and he also, he, he was Richie, uh, Copson's best buddy. So, uh, you know, they, he, he knew how to, uh, to sort of wrangle Richie in sometimes because Richie had like, Richie's one of those, he's a, he's kind of the boy genius, the mad genius. And he had so many ideas and Richie goes, yeah, well, uh, uh, Zito would go, yeah, that's the one that, that play it like that. And he go, Oh, but I could do this. And he goes, no, no, no. You know, he's, he was more of a, I mean, if I remember correctly, I think he, he definitely, um, steered Richie Cotson in a good way. Right, and, sure, and on actual big, size, right. they they have a lot of writing credits on on the same song. There there are a lot of Cots and Zito songs, but um, talk well, to me about yeah 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 oh yeah they got me on that one. Yeah. I wrote a song called "I Don't Want to Be Happy." Yeah, and uh, and I uh, I invited uh, you know Cotson was in the studio. This was in his house, and he he came out to the living room, and I go, "Hey man, I got to show you this song." And I played him the sign. He goes, oh, yeah, how about you do this? And how about you do that? And I go, yeah, that's cool. And then Zito, our producer, which, you know, it's always kind of a fine line when a producer goes, 
you know, he gives you, you know, direction and stuff like that, but he gave me the direction and, uh, and then he also took songwriting credit for it. Yeah. And it's another thing, Zito, I love you, baby. But, uh, I always (laughs) thought that was odd. (laughs) That was a, that was a, but, but talk to me about actual size in the sense, because this was the last album before the infamous farewell tour where in 2002 you're, we're done oh, yeah. the, the DVD, mm-hmm. the, um, Oh yeah. The farewell. The, the, right. The, the infamous yeah. farewell. In fact, I, I have the, um, farewell message in front of me, you know, the, the, the press release from back then it says, you know, Mr. Big. Oh has yeah. Had oh, it's me and my, my spit take. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But, um, was there any tension going into the recording of actual size? I mean, we're getting to a point where we're talking farewell tour. Was that a difficult oh, God, yeah. album to make? <laughs> it was, it was, it was really hard to make because, um, it was okay. Uh, if I remember, uh, you know, little selective memory here, but, uh, yeah, it was me and Richie and Pat pretty much, wrote the record. Billy had just gone on tour with Steve Vai and he was calling up every day going, Hey, make this record hard. It's gotta be hard and heavy and you know, get over. It was cool and kind of bluesy and, um, you know, more kind of a Richie Kotzen kind of sound to it. But he goes, man, we got to make this heavy. And while he's telling this, we're writing this sort of AOR pop record with, with shine. And, um, I wrote a song called Mary goes round. It's very, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of a USA pop gay kind of record. And I, and remember saying, oh, Billy's going to fucking, he's going to hate this record. And if he, at the time, if he would have stepped up and brought like some heavier stuff in, I would have gladly come up with lyrics and melodies and, 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 you know, wrote it with him. We did write a song called, how did I give myself away? Which was really punk pop. And it's ironic because I do it with USA pop brigade and it's a cool, edgy, clashy kind of song. And, but that was the only one that was kind of heavy that was on the record that he wrote. And, it was, there was some animosity because of songwriting. Shit happens, man. Every band goes through it. But I remember where we were doing the video. We did a song, Shine, that Richie wrote. Richie was going to sing it. And I go, oh, man, can we do it together, like a duet? I came up with this whole, you know, like, I, I, I was never intimidated by Richie Cotton at all. I mean, I loved his playing, his singing, and I didn't, I was comfortable in my shoes to, to be the lead singer, but also to share my toys. And I came up with this idea of doing more uh, lead vocals together. Like we did the song called Suffocation, um, Shine. We wrote another one. I don't, it didn't make the record, but I think it was like a B-side for something. It was called You Don't Have to Be Strong. Right. And I, I love this sort of righteous brothers thing that Richie Cotton and I had. I, it was, it was, I was, it was finally bringing the influence out. Like all my, you know, uh, the times where I'd say, you know, Mr. Big was kind of like free or Paul Rogers, Richie Cotton channeled that out of me. And I, I, I love playing with him. And I, 
it was a really good rock and roll band. I mean, Richie's style is completely different than Paul Gilbert, but I really enjoyed playing with Richie. Anyway, I digress. Where the fuck am I? No, but that, uh, that's interesting you mentioned that because I've done a lot of interviews with, with the members of Mr. Big over the year, and there mm-hmm. always seems to have been this resistance to Richie Cotts and that there was something wrong with him or that there was... Just, and it's it's refreshing to hear you say, you know what, I, I dug what he brought to this band because I think a lot right. of fans dug what he brought to the band, but it just didn't seem as though the band members dug it. So it's 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 well, great to hear we, it. We were loose, and I that appealed to me. You know, um, it wasn't like the perfect, detailed, precise Mr. Big. Every, everything has to be perfect and you know stainless steel. You know. It was kind of Richie's great guitar player, but when I and when I say like have this sloppy kind of thing going on, it was kind of Mr. Big Rolling Stones kind of thing, or Black Crows. I don't know, yeah. but I really liked his more. It was yeah you know, the looser sound that we had together, and even live was like that, and it was just it was different than. Like I said, the more regimented and rules and regulations that Mr. Bay ha- has had in the past, and so it was refreshing to me that to uh, to play with Richie. Um, but yeah, yeah, long story short, to not get into you know, because look, those days are kind of over, and this is I'm not saying this is a new a new Mr. Big, but it's a new carpet. Uh, you know, we 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 instead of sweeping all this stuff all the bad shit under the carpet. We just got rid of the old carpet and, and we got, we've got a new thing going on. So I, if I start rehashing bullshit about, you know, me and Billy clashing or something, it wasn't really, it wasn't necessarily me, me and Billy clashing. It was more of the direction of the band. Granted, it was different for everybody. You know, I enjoyed playing with Richie Cotson for the last, those last two albums, but I think our fan base wasn't digging it as much they missed the original member paul gilbert which hey you know you gotta we're doing we're playing for the people you know right and you know we we toured a lot we we tried to campaign as much as we could to show that it's still mr big but i don't think i think a, a majority of fans maybe not Man, there were some journalists that got on board too, thinking like, "Yeah, this is bull- this is not the Mister Big that they remember." But I had fun doing it, and I really enjoy. I re- I loved writing songs with the kid a lot. I tell you know. Well, invite uh, him over for USA Pop Brigade and have him come out and do it. Oh uh, yeah, he would. <laughs> have him come. in the past, You know, I, I remember a long time ago. I wanted to do an album with Richie, just Richie and I, you know, some kind of, like I said earlier, like a Righteous Brothers thing. That would and be uh, it just very never, cool. It never came into fruition. It was just so, we were both, well, he was way more busier than I was at the time. Yeah. Now, but that's the way it is. I don't know how much more time we have, so I, I do want to explore this stuff with Billy and stuff, but there, there's one thing that I'm particularly interested in. This is totally out of left field. Uh, but in 1984... Okay or maybe it was early 85, uh, you got a call from Eddie Van Halen, or Edward Van Halen. Okay. <laughs> right? Um, 
And he said, hey, Harry, you don't know that. Okay, yeah. And it's so funny that you said um, right. Billy, because I, I know what you're going to say. And, you know, and, and well, okay, I just want to. Do you want to go over Billy right now? Listen, he, after the band did the farewell, it. okay, let's, let's do this. After he did the farewell tour, uh, mm-hmm. and you put out the DVD and all that, a few years later, Billy comes out and says, well, we're not a band because of Eric Martin. It's, it's your fault. And, and, and that's maybe right. what he felt back then. And, and you know, we all yeah. say things that we regret later yeah, on or don't regret. Dude, it's his prerogative. That's all, right. It's all good. Um, but the important thing is to remember that in 2017, you have a brand new album that's bloody well kick-ass, and you guys are going to go yeah. on tour. So, you know, 2005 is a long time ago. But he, he did lay the, the, the blame on you. Is that something that you you reject and say, hey, dude, you're you're the problem, or did you say, hey, you know what, maybe I should look at myself in the mirror and, you know, let's let's fix this. <laughs> All the above, actually. Right, okay. All the above. Um, at the time, no, at the time, I, I, I knew it was him and I. We, we had this, like, miscommunication breakdown, even from the, the first time we even got together in 1989. Like I even question, I go, he was a really strong personality, still has that strong personality. I was a leader of my own thing, you know, Eric Martin band in San Francisco. And and Billy is just, you know, he was, he played with David Lee Roth, but he was leader of his own thing and uh, with Talis, you know, back in the day. But he just had, first of all, he's a great, he's like a, 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 the statesman. You know, in a way, he's 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 great in an interview. He's he's got the gift of gab. He's so intelligent. He's a superstar bass player and a huge presence. And when he speaks, it's kind of like, uh, OK, you know, it's kind of like Abraham Lincoln or something, you know. Right. And I uh, in in our when we first started out, I was super intimidated by the guy because I like I, I, you know, I, I, in the in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm a big fish in a small pond, but I wasn't at all. I was more like, I, I totally realized that I was, you know, just the lead singer, and I just, you know, just come up with some great songs, and you know, you're not, there's no boss, but Billy was kind of the boss, you know, he, it was his idea. And he called Mike Varney and Mike Varney called me and him and I, Billy and I went shopping for a deal way before Paul Gilbert came into the picture and Pat Torpy. And him and I started Mr. Big, but you know, it did come clear to me that Billy Sheehan, this was, he was the boss. And I did reject that a lot over the years. And we did butt heads about, Stuff. And even after like these long ass band meetings and conversations where I'd be so upset thinking everybody was uh, ganging up on me, um, I did go away with going, you know, maybe you're just not conveying your message. Maybe you're just not speaking clearly or, or making it, making your point. Cause I was, I felt, I did feel like I was, uh, um, against the wall a lot throughout a lot of Mr. Big's, uh, uh, the, 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 the years that we were together. Anyway, um, 
like I said, you know, Billy would say one thing and I would say one thing. We never badmouthed each other until we got until magazines and stuff later on after the band broke up. But we never had a, a we we had maybe two or three aggro moments, but there was no punches thrown or or uh, quitting or you know I'm taking my bat and ball and going home. There was nothing like that. It was just, but it was ignoring for a long, long time. It was and it was difficult. And when you know Billy was, he was more of the spokesman, and he had the platform, and everybody wanted to talk to him. And he uh, blamed me, and I always used to go, you know, you should kind of take some of the blame yourself. And I'm letting you know right now, and I've. I've mentioned it before that, yeah, me and my Mr. Big Mouth probably got me in a lot of trouble. I, I definitely had a silver tongue. I was very sarcastic back in the, uh, back in the nineties, you know, just really because that was my only, uh, defense, defense mechanism, huh. you know? And yeah, I had a smart ass mouth and, uh, I know I pissed him and a few other people off. But um, but you also I, realize I that Mr. Good. Big is is a great band brand. It's a great entity to be a part of, right? So mm-hmm. in yeah. 2009, when you decide, okay, we're going to do this 20th anniversary reunion tour, do you sit down one-on-one and just say, listen, let bygones be bygones? Did, did you come in with a new personal growth and appreciation or is it just a business relationship where you say, listen, dude, we're going to make a shitload of money. We don't have to like each other. Yeah. And, you know. No, that's that's not how it, it was okay. at all. It, it was more, you know, the things we look at each other. We, we I remember in 2009 when we did get together, we looked at each other kind of like, and it, we kind of had a smile on our face like, I think we fucked up. We both fucked up because, yep. um if we would have stayed together and even like maybe Paul, you know, probably left because of me and Billy's button heads over the years. Um, but if we would have stayed together, we could have had maybe a level of fame or a level, you know, I don't know about Bon Jovi, but like kind of up there, uh, we disappeared for too long. Yep. And we, because of, because of never talking about it, like we had, we had problems, him and I, of, um, I, you know, I gotta, I, I can't, I can't put it into words, but you know, King of the Hill moments, right. like, you know, who's the, you know, uh, King of the Mountain that day. Right. And, and a lot of, there was some songwriting things. There was live things. There was just stupid things. Like, you know, don't, we shouldn't, uh, we don't sweat but the small stuff now that stuff is like man like billy would suggest something you know like even he brought in a couple songs and he instead of running it by anybody else in the band he goes eric what do you think this song do, do you think you this would be a good mr big song and for him to say that it was like yeah i think it's got sure of course or oh i don't really like that he uh, there's a lot more respect and trust now you know and it's kind of, um, 
like I said, when we got back together in 2009, it wasn't, we kind of looked at each other like, eh, whatever, and those days are gone. I mean, you, you lose the taste for hate after five, six years go by, you know? Yeah, and also as as we get older, we, we start realizing that sometimes, um, like you said, we sweat the small stuff, and, you, and as you get older, you realize, really, I, I was concerned about that? Like, I cared about that? Really? Oh, dude. <laughs> yeah, it was, we did petty, petty stuff, you right. know? You know, it's like and, and there was no, first of all, if you really think about it, <laughs> there was, uh, you know, him and I clashed kind of like Jagger and Richards, right. Betty Court and Sharon, who knows if they clashed. <laughs> Tyler not, Perry. Ben, Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth, they clashed. Uh, oh, God, even, I remember we did an Aerosmith Aerosmith tour back in the day and uh, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. I mean, it was the looks that these guys would give it, you know, like it was ice cold. And, but somehow they persevered on stage and it was like, Oh my God. Awesome. Not like we, Billy Sheehan and I never had an Axl Rose slash moment ever, ever, right. never. It was, you know, there be um yeah it was it was just we had a communication breakdown we never talked about it we didn't think you know nobody i would come to i would come to him and i would constantly say hey man do we have a problem is it me and he'd go no no it's me and that's how we did it and uh and then we you know we 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 put out the fire that day that's how it was for for so so long and but on stage it was you know we channeled all this kind of fire that we had during the day and just you know and had this awesome explosion on stage you know yeah and 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 of course the band right now is sounding great um in those seven years where there was no mr big you you make the the um farewell or the uh, we broken up announcement it's posted on your facebook you do the the did you miss it, or were you like, oh, I'm so glad oh, that yeah, I missed it? Okay. Oh no, I, I totally missed it. Um, I remember doing a tour, like maybe five years, four or five years after we had split up, and I was bummed because I all that work that we did, and just to break up like that with no sort of warning. And also the musical climate changed in the United States. I mean, it was so different. And but where but internationally we we had a lot of success. And just give it up was a huge mistake. Uh, and it because even now you know it's you know we got a new album out, but it still feels like starting over. Um, Okay, where am I at in this conversation? I'm com- well, now, every time, we, it, it every does, time you bring me back. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I don't mean to keep bringing you back, but it, it's. I, I like that the the compelling story and the and the emotion of it all. Um, yeah, but it, it does feel like you've started over because the the al- the new album, Defying Gravity, does have a fresh or or a refreshed vigor to it, if that if that makes sense. Because you know, I, I followed Mr. Big. I, I bought the first albums and all that stuff, and I've got the last albums. Mm. And there, there was a time where I felt, on the fan perspective, that it got 
more into being watch me show off my instrument and less about songs. And maybe that's just a wrong perception. Don't don't crucify me if that's wrong. No, no, no. That, but, I, that makes sense to me. It, uh, but, but I mean, that's your opinion. Right, right, right. Uh, and it's but, neither but it right does, nor wrong. It does make... Yeah, I mean, I mean, when you listen to some of the music, it was... But, it, there was, you know, a couple times it it did feel like it was about the solos and not about the, and not about the songs. Right. Not an... I mean, look, you know, every album, not there's not a perfect song in every... Uh, I mean, a, right. there's no perfect album, right. you know, right. which is... Right. Right. Nah, I'm, I'm, and we don't want that anyway. But I do feel but, that Devi Defying Gravity has an incredible great focus on songs because they seem so well constructed. Melodies are so well brought out. The musicianship or the instrumentation is playing to the song rather than being, you know, uh, the spotlight. You know, if if that makes sense, it it just seems very cohesive and and it's it's great. It is cohesive. The, the only the only thing that irked me a little bit on the on the record, but that's mainly because, you know, I, I've written a lot of uh, lyrics, melodies, music as well, but lyrics. Uh, I wanted to spend a little bit more time writing lyrics because, you know, I always think people, do people actually listen to that shit? Um, uh, but I wanted to, you know, I like being clever and having metaphors and I wanted to have, you know, just have my, you know, more of a message. And on this record is really super simple lyrics. Uh, and that's a good thing too. Never done that before. Kind of, uh, there's a lot of to be with you and shine kind of lyrics on this record. Real simple, right to the point message. Not yeah. a lot of, you know, like even people go, Hey, what's this song mean? Well, it's kind of right there. It's I love you. You love me on, on a couple of them. Right. Right, but um, and that's what but, I mean too. That it, that everybody's sort of playing to the song rather than playing to their own spotlight. And and I know that's very sort of strange to say, but it, you know, everybody played to make the song the songs, and it's great. Yeah, and in a way, I mean, I mean, Kevin Elson is way. I mean, he he has the ability to make everybody a star on the record, but it's not that on this record it's more the song is the star and um anyhow i um, it's a it's a unique brand of uh of tunes it's not like any other record that we've ever done um but it does have um like i, I know we were discussing this early but it definitely has this raw energy to it and uh, and and a lot of like you said it earlier, where you said not a lot a lot of time for perfection. Right. Uh, yeah. No. I mean, sometimes you could beat it to death. You know, I've I've done that a million times. Where rewrite, 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 just to try to make it perfect for who? For me? You know. And on this one was more. Hey, do you like the song? First impression. Let's play it. I go. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. Let's cut it. Not like let's throw in the kitchen sink, velvet curtains, and violins, you know. Yeah, I know that. And having done these interviews for for many years, and and been a rock fan, I, I listen to you know Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and Gene Simmons, and they say, oh, that song, and you go, yeah, we wrote it in five minutes on the back of a napkin. And those always seem to be like the big hits, not these ones where we go, well, we spent eight years trying to perfect it, and you go, oh, <laughs> right, right, you know. Right. Um, and and let's finish with this. We got. Just two more questions because we, we've been at this for 45 minutes. But 
uh, just tell me what this Van Halen story is. So 1984, David Lee Roth <laughs> leaves Edward Van Halen or Eddie Van Halen, calls you and says, come on out. Um, how far in rehearsals did you go with them or have meetings or like none, none, none. It was, I, uh, Zeke Clark, uh, was a guitar tech for Eddie Van Halen, Edward, Eddie, I don't know, whatever. And, um, Zeke worked with me for years. We were roommates, uh, in a band house. Um, I had a band 415 turned into Eric Martin band for years. And Zeke and I were best buddies. And when Zeke started working with, uh, Eddie, he didn't invite me up to the house and, uh, to 5150 and, you know, I'd be there and Eddie be jamming and I, I, I'd be, I'd, I'd hang out and watch this guy jamming and stuff. And so I know he knew, he knew of me. He kind of remembered me a little bit. It was it's one of those things where he'd be jamming, writing songs and Zeke would be there. You know, this is my friend, Eric Martin. And he'd go, yeah, yeah. How you doing? And so it was kind of fun to hang out, but cut, um, 80, I don't know when it was 80, 85. Yeah. It must have been something some, like that. Yeah. yeah, Danny Korchmar, Cooch, uh, nickname. Danny Korchmar uh, produced my album, just Eric Martin, and it was. I thought it was a great record. It was kind of like building the Perfect Beast Part Two because uh, everybody we were when the studio where we were at was called Record One in Los Angeles, and it was everybody who played on Don Henley's building the perfect beast album. And when Don would go home, these guys would party it up and come over to the, to the studio where I was and play on my record. So it was, and man, some really good songs on it, but it definitely had this, you know, Danny Korchmark, Don Henley kind of collaboration sound. And it was, I, I loved it anyway. So I'm on the road campaigning it. And I get home and I get a phone call, uh, answer machine message. It says, Hey, this is, uh, Edward Van Halen. Um, I'd like to talk to you about auditioning for Van Halen. So when I get this, yeah, me and my girlfriend at the time living in this funky little canal apartment, um, you know, a couch and a fucking, and a, and a painting of like a dog, uh, dogs playing poker on the wall, you know, just totally struggling and poor. And I'm like going, holy shit, what's going on? So he was going to call back the next couple of days later. And I took one of those little suction cup dealios, you know, kind of, kind of, I kind of like did like a, a spy versus spy thing. And I suction cup on the telephone and I got my tape recorder going and he goes, Hey, this is Edward Van Halen. And my voice I listened to it. I still have the cassette. You can hear me going, Hey, Hey man, this is so fantastic. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Listen, I want to, uh, I love your voice, but I hate your record. That's what he says to me. <laughs> That's fine. And I go, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. My, my record sucks. You know, like total geek. And, um, he goes, yeah, I want you to come down and audition for the band. So anyway, um, I, remember coming down, I was, I did, um, 
some soundtrack work with Neil Sean. We were in L.A. together doing some kind of a premiere for some movie soundtrack thing. I remember even seeing Sammy Hager in the airport this one time where Sammy, I go, Neil goes, hey, Eric, tell him, you know, you're going to audition for Van Halen. And I was so excited, but all, you know, and riding this awesome wave of like, wow, I'm going to audition. And Sammy, I remember going, hey, man, I got this gig. I even have a photo in my house of the three of us together. And he's looking, he's, he, had, he had way more confidence than I did. And when he was telling me this thing and Neil Sean's there, I'm going, holy shit, I'm going to do this. And I, I totally chickened out, man. It was a, uh, I felt like this was like mighty big clown shoes to fill. You know, David Lee Roth. I, I went in the back of my head. I'm thinking, I mean, I could sing a lot better than that guy or whatever. I mean, or, or, or it was a different kind of singing. David Lee Roth was like you said earlier about Eddie Van Halen and Ace Frehley and Eddie Van Halen couldn't be in kiss. I, David Lee Roth totally fit in Van Halen. He was awesome. He's a showman and a front man. And he had this awesome scream and this kind of talk singing. And I was like, a rock and soul singer and a, and a still, still a rookie, you know, and I made a few albums in the eighties and I was, uh, cocky, but I, I realized then that I was, this was, I was in way over my head and I remember it was raining. I went to LA and I, I go, I, I can't do it. And he was fucking, he was like pissed. He was like, dude, what's your problem? And like, he goes, come on down. It's, you know where I live? Come on. And I'm like, I don't think I could do it. And I, when I got off the phone, I, you know, went back home and I, I realized that if I would have done it over these years, even though I might not have got the gig, I could have had some awesome bragging rights. And I just never did it. And, you know, I'm not going to, I didn't, I'm not going to kick myself over it because in 19, you know, maybe been a year, a couple of years later, Billy Sheen gave me a call and I got lucky to get in a rock band of that. I was, that, you know, I had my own clown shoes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And see, and there you go. So it, it, it goes to show that you should be grateful <laughs> to Billy and everything he's done. Um, kidding. Oh, look at you. Look at you. Look at you. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Throwing yeah. that now in there. Get, look at you. I was a smart ass and, and a silver tongued devil. And then I should be grateful to Billy Sheehan. You're running the Billy Sheehan fan club, are you? No, no, well, no. Good no. for you. No, he's no, a, no. He's a, he's a great guy. No. Um, jokes aside, though, uh, let, let's finish with this. Matt Starr, uh, obviously, and he's he, of course, played with Ace Frehley, since we have Ace coming up uh, often today. It's it's all ancestral. Yeah. And our, our drum tech, Ange Dunleavy, uh, is Ace's drum tech. So, yeah. Woo. Yeah, there you go. So, what does he bring to to the band? Because, um, he, you know, he does come in in a delicate situation, and of course, now everything's yeah. worked out. And, and Pat, you know, it's all it's all you know. You've got five guys, and it's great. But what was it like to have him come in, especially under the circumstance? It wasn't like Pat quit and you had to get a new guy. Mm-hmm. And 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 Matt's I great. Kind of, 
Matt well, well, Billy, Billy brought Matt in. Billy had played this gig with Ace, and Matt was the drummer. And I remember first, first of all, when Pat said he couldn't do it, and he, you know, like when he went on the, he he didn't think he could go on the road, and he eventually did go on the road and played like seven, eight songs with us on the road, and but we needed somebody else to fill up you know, the rest of the gap. And I remember we were looking into Dean Castronova. He, we thought he'd be perfect because he sings awesome. He's an amazing drummer and we all get along with him. We got, you know, we, we toured with, I remember meeting Dean years ago. He was in Hardline with Neil Sean <laughs> This is like Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Like Kevin Bacon, you know, <laughs> Kevin Bacon's story. Yeah. And, and just to let but, you know, I've been texting with Dean for the last week. We've been comparing notes on the new Revolution Saints album. So it, it's, oh, it's, wow. it's cool. a small, small world. It is a small world. So Dean Castanova was our guy that we wanted. To, we, we all agreed, yeah, he would be really great to be, to carry the load for, Pat Torpy, not be in the band, be a touring drummer. And, and Dean, I think Dean wanted to do it. And then something happened where Jonathan Kane had some function that he needed Dean at. And Dean, maybe it was a wedding, or I can't remember what it was, but it was cutting right in the middle of touring. And so Dean goes, hey, man, I can't do it. And we were bummed about that. And we needed a guy who could play drums and sing. I remember, okay, I, I don't know if I'm getting this name wrong because I always screw it up with Kenny Aronoff and Kenny Aronson. Kenny, okay, Kenny Aronoff is the drummer. Correct. And I and I know Kenny. I I, I just always got his na last name wrong. I mean, I, I hung out with him when he was playing with the Smashing Pumpkins in Japan and we hung out together the whole night and just talked and talked and and love it, and I, I I love it how maybe he gets my name wrong with uh, Eric Singer or uh, you know um... no Kenny Aronson <laughs> Kenny Aronson is a bass player who's been with Billy Idol, Joan Jett, Hall and Notes, and, and right and uh, Derringer, right and uh, Arnoff yeah, they, is um... Arnoff is the drummer. So anyway, we were pushing for Kenny Arnoff, right and. Uh, and we were trying to find out if he could sing or not, because I thought he would be perfect too. Great guy. He's a total, he's like the, you know, Swiss army knife of rock. I mean, he could pretty much do anything and he would be perfect as well. And then while we're trying to come up with like different drummers. And I remember another guy too, that I want, I like, I wanted to work with this is uh, Jimmy DeGrasso, who I know from the old days of Y&T. And now he plays with black star riders and, and uh, and he also played. With he might have played he's, with he's with Rat now. He he quit Black Star. He's, he's with, with Rat. He's with Rat now. Okay, no, no matter what, he's a he's a fantastic drummer. Absolutely. But anyway, so um, and Billy played with Ace. Got the whole Aronoff Aronson things like irks me out because I love Kenny Aronoff and I totally fucked up his last name. Ah, kill me. Anyway, so um, Billy said I found this guy and he sings Love Gun. And plays drums at the same time, and that was the pre. That was, it was like uh, okay, and he goes yeah, and uh, and we're we got to get somebody now, and he he's good. So Matt fucking learned 
every every little nuance, every little detail, every little thing that Pat played and sang. And we went to Mate's uh, rehearsal studios like we always do uh, in uh, North Hollywood. And we got in a tiny ass room and it was me, Billy Paul and Matt Starr. And there's Pat Torpy's. We're all looking at him. He's facing us and he played great. And he was, I mean, he did the thing, you know, he wasn't Pat Torpy by no fucking stretch of it. I mean, he, Pat Torpy has a feel, a tone, details that just, he's so super magical, great drummer that I've been playing with for 26 plus years. And there's no, uh, there's nobody better, but Matt was, uh, he was pretty damn good. And he's more of a four on the floor. He's more of a bottom kind of drummer compared to, to, to Pat, which Bonham's great, but you know, Bonham, Mr. Big, it just didn't, it kind of didn't fit as well. So Pat is there to kind of coach Matt constantly on how our sound is. And this is the way it is, you know, Matt star is our touring drummer and he, you know, I'm like, no, no offense to Matt. I love the guy, but you know, Pat's Torpy is Mr. Big's drummer, no matter what, no matter what. Um, and I get, and I'll finish on this one. On a personal level, though, when when you heard the news about Pat, I mean, is that something where you 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 sit down and 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 cry the, the night away, or or did you just get freaked out, or or? I, I, mean, I was I was in Pat's. Uh, he's got a home studio above his garage, and uh, it was Pat Regan working on the stories we could tell album. He was, you know, he's, he was coming, he was, he's working on his pro tools thing and me and Pat sitting there and Matt, Pat's got a, um, an electronic drum set and I'm, I have an acoustic guitar and I'm working out these songs with him. And I knew like, like he, when we did the what if album, his left hand would kind of shake a little bit and I go, Hey man, you're right. He goes, yeah, something's going on with me. But and then we played, we did that What If album. We did a, a long tour, um, did a lot of great live stuff together, and I didn't think much about it. And then when we got together a couple of years later, and I had talked to him once in a while, but he never brought it up. So here we are working on the stories record, and he goes, he's kind of shaking a little bit. I'm going, hey man, whatever happened with that? You okay? And he kind of gets up, sits on the couch, and he goes, hey, I got to tell you something. And Pat Reagan's looking at me because I think he's already told Pat. And he goes, I have Parkinson's. And like, we're looking at each other. And he starts to tear up, and I start to tear up. And, you know, I didn't know what to say. I've never had anybody, you know, I, I, I've had situations like this before where I actually had to say when somebody told me that they, they, they're dying of cancer and I've had to say goodbye to people, my own parents, that kind of thing. And it felt like that. And then he goes, well, I'm, look, I'm not dying. I'm just, I going through this whole neurological thing. And I didn't even know what Parkinson was. I thought it was kind of like a, a death sentence. And I'm only, you know, Michael J. Fox is the only one I who had, had ever heard that had it kind of stuff. 
And Pat's talking to me about it, and we're discussing it, and, and he was super depressed. God, he was so depressed, and it was so difficult. And he goes, yeah, I don't know if I can do this, and like, he was all bummed out. And Man, I don't know. I wasn't trying to be sarcastic or be silver-tongued devil again, but I went, I did like a moonstruck thing, and I kind of went, hey, snap out of it. Let's go. Let's get to work. Because that's all, that was my, mech, that was, I didn't know how to, to handle get it. out of the situation. I, I didn't say like, well, you have to go lay down and I, you know, or do we should call somebody. I mean, it was like that. It was so, I was completely a fish out of water. I didn't know what was happening, right. but I go, yeah, man, let's, Hey, snap out of it. Let's go. And he goes, well, it's not really that simple. I go, bullshit. Let's just do what you can, son, you know? And I'm not saying, you know, I didn't cure the guy, but I, Definitely, there was like we had mo we had an uplifting moments. We 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 did like three weeks of that, just coming over every day to uh, his house and arranging all that ho that whole record together. Right. And it was kind of a goal for him. He he, you know, we he get up. He's a very physical guy too, man. I mean, he, the guy, even with this Parkinson's thing, and it, he's limited physically. He still has a six pack, you know, I'm drinking a six pack. I mean, this guy's still strong as, as a bull and mentally it took him a little while, but he, he persevered. He, he, he got through it. And then when Billy and uh, Paul showed up, we, you know, we talked forever about, you know, we're not going to leave a, our man behind. We are going to, we're going to see this through and, and and do it together and whatever Pat needs to do, we need to take him on the road. We need to have him be a part of this band. Uh, and I because have to of say, our friendship. And I just have know? to say from a from a fan's perspective well, in fact, even from a human perspective, I have so much respect for that because especially in the music business, the easy business decision would have been, we'll just get a new guy. The hell with him. And and no. you didn't you didn't but no. that's but that's what people do. And you didn't do that, and it's just it just it, yeah. it speaks volumes of of Billy, of you, of Paul, that you did what was right on a human level, and so for that I just have an incredible amount of respect, just an incredible amount. Of respect. He, it was. We're, hey, look, you know, even all the stupid shit we've done in the past, of like me and Billy, or not stupid shit, but like arguing or something like that. Hey, this is a brotherhood, you know, you're like people always say, you know, it's like a marriage. It, um, it was, it was more of a brotherhood and like right. Pat, Pat's ailment in a way got us, made us come together a lot stronger. Kind of, it was always there, but it, we, we, uh, it focuses we united. You. Yeah. It makes you realize that, Hey, <laughs> You know, compared to to what he's going through, maybe arguing about a song credit or whatever just is oh, not you exactly. Know. Yeah, I mean, with that, that's kind of yeah, that's it's a great the great focus. Nothing, nothing in my life mattered more than Pat Torpy. You know, and like even so, we, you know, we been like working on this last record we did actually. You know, after the stories we could tell album and tour. Pat Torpy and I went to Japan together and along with this guy, John McNamara from Australia, we did an acoustic tour 
Oh, we played about 10 shows in Japan, like right after and had a blast and bonded. And like, even like, I could remember talking to the audience and, you know, being, I'm a lot different when I'm playing acoustic um, on stage. I'm a little bit more talkative on stage and more storytelling and being funny. And Pat was looking at me going, Hey man, you're funny. Uh, what, what, when did this happen? How come you don't do that with Mr. Big? And I go, cause of you, cause you told me not to be funny anymore. <laughs> you know, and Mr. Big, he was so strong willed back in the day, but yeah, we, it was a little bit more, we, 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 we bonded big time uh, over the last, you know, since we got back together. And that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a great thing. And yeah. talking about the old, so, so Mitch, yeah. never again. Let's not bring the old bullshit back with Billy Sheen and Eric Martin. I'm looking at it like, who gives a shit? <laughs> you know, who right. cares? Yeah, and, 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 and I'm not so much interested in bringing up the bullshit. I'm more interested in sort of the personal growth that goes on. Uh, because, you know, we all through life I, I, do things and then you realize. Just, uh, just to reiterate yeah. uh, uh, or just to just to uh, an annex or whatever yeah. about Billy Sheehan. Um, you know, both of us, there's no blame. It's like we kind of lost respect for each other back in the day. Right. And then when the years went by and we weren't together and, and you asked me if I missed it, fuck yes, I missed it. And I, res- and I realized, man, these guys were good people. Um, great musicians. I lost, uh, sight of that. You know, I got, I was in a band with, uh, you know, I, 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 a lot of times I did feel like it was like all about the solos and not about the songs and stuff, but it was a band and it was a great, um, it was, a, it was a great bond that was broken a long time ago and I did miss it. And I thank my lucky stars that we swept all that bullshit under the table and, and working it out, you know, and it's kind of, even though it's starting over, it's kind of cool because, uh, you know, it's a clean slate. Yeah, and it's, and it's a great slate. The, the, the last uh, couple of albums have been fantastic. The new one, Define Gravity, is fantastic. And the future, from my perspective, uh, looks very bright for Mr. Big. I think a lot of folks are going to be <laughs> looking forward to the next new album, even though this one is just fresh out the door. So, uh, you know. Yeah, cool. Thank you, Eric. A great, a great pleasure. We 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 took a twenty minute interview and made it an hour and twenty minutes. So uh, thank you for that. Hey, Mister Big Mouth, I Mr. can't <laughs> help it. I, I, I got shit to say. Yeah, right. and uh, yeah. So there you go. Thank you so much, and very much looking forward to uh, Mister Big in Canada, USA Pop Brigade in Canada, and and everything else, uh, solo album, and and everything else that you have to offer. All right, cool, Mitch. Thank you very much for the platform, bra. Cheers. Thank you. Bye bye now. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. What makes new Simply Summer's Eve Feminine Wash different? It's simple. 
Seriously, that's the answer. It's made with simple ingredients. Ingredients that help stop odor and help you maintain a naturally healthy pH, gently and effectively. Here's what Simply Summer's Eve ingredients do not include. Harsh chemicals, dyes, alcohol, or parabens. And it comes in light, refreshing scents like mandarin blossom and coconut water. New Simply Summer's Eve Gentle Foaming Wash and Cleansing Cloths. Gentle by nature. Click the tile to learn more. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.